We hope you enjoy this message from St. Martin C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. Today, we are finishing off our series that we've been doing. And this has been an amazing series called Living Grace. And over the past five weeks or so, we've been looking at this topic of grace and the pivotal, the important part that it has in each of our lives. As we know Christ, as we're changed by him, as we experience his grace, everything changes for us. We really want you to get this deep in your heart. We want you to know God's grace more than you know anything else. I'm not sure if you've seen the movie The Invention of Lying, but it covers, I think, a clever idea. And it imagines a world where it's impossible to lie. And then this one person comes along who is able to lie and they can kind of use it to their own ends and beat the system uh, a little bit through doing it. Well, I've got another clever idea that I think would make an interesting movie. I'm going to pitch it to you this morning. And if you like it and you want to run with it, then you can turn it into a movie. I just ask 10%, all right? That's all I need. If you're making millions, 10% is fine by me. Uh, I want you to imagine a world where there is a group of people who can feel no shame. A group of people who can't feel shame. Uh, um, There's still an internal sense of right and wrong. There are consequences to bad choices, and there is guilt, a sense that when you do something, it's wrong, and you need to repent of that. But there's no shame. And you go, well, hang on, what's the difference? And in this series, we've been exploring that, that there is such a thing as as guilt about what we do, uh, but then there is the shame. Guilt says what I do is wrong. Shame says who I am is wrong. The Bible says it this way in uh, 2 Corinthians 7. It says that there is a godly sorrow that brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But there is a worldly sorrow that brings death. Now, I want you to imagine that you can have that, that good sorrow, but not have that bad sorrow. I want you to imagine this movie where there's this group of people who can walk around and go, I actually don't feel shame. You, I can live life without blushing. You can't embarrass me. And the cool thing is, is that actually that should describe the people of God in our world. That we are those who can live without shame. And I want you to imagine if that was the case for you. Imagine that you could sing or dance in front of a crowd and not worry about whether you were the best or not. You could do something good and not need people to tell you it was good for you to feel all right about yourself. You could be honest about your struggles without feeling like the judgment of others would cripple you. You you can really actually get healing in some areas because you could be honest about them without shame, but knowing there are things that need to change. You could cry, maybe, and not feel weak. Wouldn't that be good, guys? We could cry and not feel like, oh, this means I'm so weak. You could do the career you wanted without feeling uh, ashamed that it wasn't somehow more important. You never say the words, I'm just a. I'm just a teacher. I'm just a mother. I'm just a cleaner. Whatever those words are. You could wear what you wanted and not worry if it was the latest fashion. You could let your physical imperfections show. Maybe you wouldn't worry so much about getting changed in that changing room. Wouldn't it be great if we could live without shame? That is actually what the people of God should be like. 
that we've been so loved by God, so aware of his grace, that there is no more shame. Wouldn't that be a weight off your shoulders? It's the richness of the grace of God. Now, we don't need to experience that. We can live life without blushing. It doesn't give us license to embrace sin, but allows us to be renewed, to change, to become more like Christ day by day. And this is what Jesus did for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says this, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. How awesome is that verse? How amazing is that verse? Jesus was rich. Before he was born, he enjoyed all the benefits of being God, living in an existence of complete satisfaction and oneness with the Spirit and with the Father. Yet he gave all that up and became poor. He became human like we are and died the death of a servant on the cross. This is the grace that Jesus offers to you and me, that we might become rich. Imagine Mark Zuckerberg giving up his billions to cure coronavirus, and that's the right kind of picture. The richness he offers us is a life uh, united with him, a life where we know him, a life where we live for him, a life free of the shame of what others think, instead only mattering, uh, only caring what he thinks about us. Our life is lived in repentance, surrendered to him and him alone. And this morning, we're going to discuss one more element of living this life of grace. And it is the central theme of 2 Corinthians 8, where I just quoted a scripture, and also of 2 Corinthians 9, uh, which you can look at during the week. It's the topic of how grace makes us generous people. Generous people. Now, when Warren gave me this topic, I thought, what on earth does generosity have to do with grace? I think I actually even said that to Warren. Really? Generosity? Is that... We were landing the series on grace. And when you think about what Jesus has done for you, you think, I live with grace and without shame, uh, therefore I'm going to be generous. Maybe I naturally think of other things. Living God's way. Yeah, absolutely. Jesus, you've saved me, so now my natural response is that I'm going to gratefully live by you by the power of your spirit, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Living in gratitude, for sure. Thank you, God, for all that you've done for me and all that you've saved me from. And now I can appreciate this world. And forgiving, wow, yeah. If Jesus has forgiven us, then how can I not forgive others? But generosity, it seems to be unrelated. However, when we look at Scripture, we see that Paul makes a direct relation between God's gift and our giving. When God's grace is truly at work in your life, there will always be an outward expression of its inward working through generosity. C.S. Lewis says that the most, uh, those most conscious of another world make the most effective Christians in this one. And I think similar way, in a similar way, those who are most aware of the depth of God's grace will be the most generous people in this world. See, the word for grace is the word uh, in Greek called charis, charis. I don't know Greek, but that's apparently the word charis. And it is where we get the word charity from. So maybe it is charis. Uh, what scripture teaches is that when you experience charis, the natural outworking is charity, is generosity. 
In 2 Corinthians 8, we read about a group of people whose experience of the grace of God was so transforming that their generosity is an example for all Christians. Instead of asking, what can I get? They plead to give. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to see this example from verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Paul is talking to the people of Corinth, and he is talking to them about a special grace that God has given the church in Macedonia. Now, that's places like uh, Philippi and Thessalonica. They are also mentioned in the New Testament. And Paul, uh, what he was doing was he was collecting a special offering over many years for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. There was an offering that was begun in Corinth a year or two ago previously, but they had stopped giving to it. Yet the Macedonians had not stopped giving. Let's read a whole big passage and then we'll dive into it. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now, have you ever read the Bible and looked at a passage and thought, wow, that sounds lovely? That sounds really nice. I'm sure there's a lot to that. And then just moved on to the next passage. I must admit, I'm guilty of doing that sometimes. And I think, there's a lot there, if I was really to have a look at it. And I think sometimes reading scripture is a little bit like listening to music. You ever hear a great music track, and you think, oh, that, that sounds nice. But then you listen to it a second time and a third time. And all of a sudden, you notice things that you didn't notice before. You notice that bass line that's really driving underneath it. You notice the, the, the harmonies that are coming through in the background, or just the tightness of how everything pulls together. I think scripture's like that sometimes. As we come back and we look at it again and again, we get to see new layers. We get to see wonderful new depths of what it says. So let's look at these verses, and let's see these different layers. And as we do, we're going to see uh, three characteristics of this grace-powered generosity. And the first one is that generosity changes our vision. The second one is that generosity is voluntary. And the third one is that generosity is a countercultural value. Got three Vs, hey? Not bad. Today, as we read about generosity, we're reading about a specific situation where people were financially giving. But generosity doesn't just have to be through finances. It's not just about money. And I want you to know today that we're not taking an offering at the end. Other than the, the Fiji uh, giving, there's no special offering that we're trying to do this because we want you to do something for us. We're talking about this because this is a, a scriptural value. But there are other ways to be generous as well. One of the biggest ways for us to be generous is with our time towards others. There are people who are lonely and need someone to talk to. There are those who are just in need of some help, some practical help. And we can give our energy and time towards them. It can also be that we can be generous with our words. 
Words are a really simple and easy way for us to be generous to others. As we speak, as we say uplifting things, there is a generosity that's coming through. There's a grace of God that's coming through. I think one of the most powerful ways we can be generous is in the way we think about other people. You know, we've had another uh, mini outbreak of COVID this week, and apparently there's been some big problems with people blaming those who've got COVID for having it. And I think... As Christians, we should be generous in the way that we think towards others, not assuming the worst, not assuming that they're bad people, but assuming good things about others. When someone hurts you, when someone does something to you, you can think generously about their motives. Most people aren't out to get you. Sometimes they are, but most of the time they're not. And maybe we can think generously, and we can look at generosity and all of these ways. So as we do this, as we look at how generosity changes our vision, how it's voluntary and it's a countercultural value, think about how you can lift up the generosity in your life as you've experienced it from God. So, verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. What's the severe trial that Paul is talking about here? Well, the Macedonians were heavily persecuted for their faith. They had much pressure from the outside, and they weren't the richest of peoples. They had reasons to look after their own interests. Yet their example is that they were able to give even when things were at their toughest. Why? Paul says their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. What a great phrase. Usually you would think it was their overflowing joy and their great resources which welled up in rich generosity. Yet it's their their poverty that's highlighted here. They were not wealthy and well-to-do, unlike the Corinthians, by the way, who were pretty wealthy and more affluent. They were poor and had every reason to be focused on themselves. However, they weren't. It's almost like Poverty is like a drought. However, joy is like an underground spring. And the underground spring was so vibrant for the Macedonians that the result that was that the well of their generosity was full. Their internal resources were greater than their external circumstances. God's grace had done a work in their lives and they were changed. See, generosity means we focus more on what God has done for us than our own situation. When we have our vision set in gratitude on what God has done, then our lives will overflow in generosity towards others. There were once two people. The first was called Horde and the second was called Share. Horde only had one rule. If you want to go rich, I want to grow rich, control your money. He had financial spreadsheets and budgets. He tracked his money. He knew the cost of his bills, and there were never any unforeseen expenses. She was also quite smart with money. She was not frivolous with her spending. She planned for the future. Hoard and Shear earned the same amount, and from the outside, their approaches looked similar. In fact, there was only one difference. Shear was generous. Hoard was not. When people asked Hoard for help, he would apologize. Oh, I'm sorry. I wish I could, but oh, I'm not able to at the moment. Shea, however, wouldn't even wait to be asked. Instead, she would regularly make people meals, buy things people needed, and give random gifts of money. 
One of these people found their wealth a joy and a blessing. One found it a difficulty and a curse. I'll let you decide which. When we focus our vision on God's grace, we can become more like Sheer and more like the Macedonians, where our joy is greater than our poverty. Generosity changes our vision from ourself onto God and all that he's given to us. So generosity changes our vision. Secondly, generosity is voluntary. Now, many times I've been to a Christian conference where the giving talk has almost been as long as the sermon. Has anyone ever been to one of those conferences? Uh, and sometimes they use the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, to convince me to give to their, to their conference, which usually I pay to be at anyway. They use the verses in giving and receiving, how if I sow sparingly, I'm going to reap sparingly, but if I give to them generously, I will be generously blessed. And then they tell me it all has to be done cheerfully. So not only do I have to give my money, but I have to do it with a smile on my face. And even though these verses, if you look at them in context, are against pressuring people to give, I'm left with a sense of obligation to give and guilt if I don't. And that is not the picture Paul is painting. Instead, he is showing that our generosity is a voluntary act that we undertake willingly. That is what Paul praises the Macedonians for doing. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 3. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, able, and even beyond their own ability, entirely on their own. Paul never tells us how much they give. But like the woman at the temple who gave her two small coins, they give, gave as much as they were able to, and even more than that. You can tell Paul is like, what's up with these crazy Macedonians? Guys, you've got a lot going on. And you still chose to give extravagantly to the needs of others. And that is great, but it must be done with wisdom. Now, if you're in an airplane and the oxygen masks fall down from the ceiling, what are you told to do? If you're told to put it on yourself first or put it on the person beside you? You're actually told to put it on yourself first. Because to be able to help others, you need to be able to breathe on your own. So we need to be wise in the way that we give. And we need to be wise when we're asked to be generous. Yeah, we can give over and above, but we need to make sure we can still breathe. So Paul was here, was encouraging a gift. And his gift that he was encouraging them for was actually not for the church. It wasn't for his own ministry, but it was for the poor. In the same way, we need to look for the right ways for our generosity to overflow. We want you to encourage you to live in grace by letting that, grow, that, that uh, grace overflow to others, that generosity overflow to others with your time, your money, your energy, your words, and the way that you think about others. So we want to encourage you. Make sure you, you are generous wisely. So the way we do this in our family is we actually put aside a certain amount of money each month, and we just call that generosity money. And every month, whenever something comes up, there's a special need, there's something going on. We know already that we have money set aside that we can be generous to others with. And you should have a think yourself, how are we going to do generosity? Well, we should always be in agreement with your spouse and the important people in your life. We should give generously, but it shouldn't cripple us. And Paul tells us this some more. He says in verse 12, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. In other words, you can't give out of what you don't have. Only give out of what you do. 
And he says, uh, verse 13, our desire is not that others might be relieved for your heart, priest, but that there might be equality. In the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. This wonderful thing of, of uh, community and, and Christianity, whereas we give towards others, we know that there will come a time when actually that will come back to us. God is faithful in those moments. So make sure your generosity is a voluntary gift that is within your means. If you're going to give your time, you should not be giving it at the expense of your loved ones. Make sure it's within your means. If we all do that, then we can experience the wonder of always having enough. So generosity changes our vision. It's voluntary. And this is a really cool one. It's a countercultural value. Paul continues to tell us about the Macedonians and their way of giving. He says, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. They pleaded with us for the privilege to give. To give. Isn't this so different from our world? When was the last time we pleaded for something to give to? When was the last time I prayed, dear God, what I really want right now, oh, please show me something more to give to. We, it doesn't often enter my prayers. I mean, come on. This is outrageous stuff. Especially in our world where we have so many options for our time, for our energy and money, and it's all geared towards us making our lives feel better and easier. And if I'm honest, my prayers usually go, God, give to me, bless me, heal me, forgive me, change me, help me. My generosity often is not in comparison to God's grace. A preacher at a small church would sometimes take his two small sons with him to an early morning Bible study. An elderly gentleman would sometimes split his donut with the two brothers. One day, the smallest son came to church with a sandwich bag full of Cheerios. The elderly man leaned over and asked the young boy if he could have some. The boy reached in his bag, pulled out a Cheerio, and split it in half, and gave him half a Cheerio. And I think our view of our own generosity, or our generosity, is often like that. God gives us so much, and we give him back half a Cheerio. His grace has given everything that we need to live a life of freedom. And there should be a return. In comparison to our way of doing things, these Macedonians are mad. They see it as such a privilege to share in this service. They wanted nothing for it. They didn't get any special rewards and they didn't ask for honor. They just wanted to serve by being generous. You know, Matthew 6, uh, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. And he's talking about their way of praying. And he says the Pharisees love to go stand on street corners and love to be seen by everyone so that they can be acknowledged. And he says, I tell you what, they've received their reward in full. But he said, when you pray, go uh, to your, into your closet and pray to your father who sees what is done in secret. And I think it's the same with generosity. That as we give, it's not about us receiving honor. It's not about us receiving anything for it. But rather, it's about us honoring God and giving back to him in an extravagant way. Generosity comes from a heart of devotion to God, which is overflowing, which is exactly what happened for the Macedonians. Verse 5, and they exceeded our expectations. 
They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Isn't this a great verse for Christian living? It's not always about the outward works that make you look good. Instead, it's about a complete heart and life change that overflows to every part of our life, changing our behavior. Give yourself first to God, and then follow his will in giving yourself to others. Verse 6, so we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Generosity is an act of grace. Generosity done with love is a Christian value. It is a countercultural sign of God's grace. But when people look at the church and they see generosity flowing out, they go, well, that's not normal. What's that about? Well, it's an act of grace. Amy Carmichael says, you can always give without loving, but you can never love without giving. Paul tells the people of Corinthians that they started well, but didn't continue to give. Verse 7, but since you excel in everything, in these other graces, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. This is how transformational the grace of God is. It will make your faith unstoppable. Your speech will be godly. You will have the knowledge of new revelation. There will be an earnest devotion towards God and a love for others. And there will also be this grace of giving. So let's apply this today. Let's have a think about our lives for a moment. What is your attitude towards generosity? Are you begging to find places and ways to give to other people? Are you making space for people so you can spend time with them? Are you able to look away from your own needs so that you can see the concerns of others and speak life and hope to them? When someone wrongs you, is there a spirit of grace, of generosity? that says, I'm going to give that person the benefit of the doubt. I know things are tough for them. I know it wasn't personal. We can talk about it and work it out. Is there generosity in the way that you're thinking about others? Do you tend towards suspicion and reading negative motives in what they do? Or do you think generously about them? And what we're trying to kindle in you through as we end this series is this living grace being poured out in the way that we treat each other. To see other people experience that grace and go, what is different about you? What is different? And it's easy for us to talk about it. But we need to uh, look at real practical ways that it can make a difference. And sometimes that hurts a little bit. A pastor had a farmer friend in his congregation, and they were talking over the fence one day. The pastor asked the farmer, Abe, if you had 100 horses, would you give me 50? Abe said, certainly. The pastor asked, if you had 100 cows, would you give me 50? Abe said, yes. Then the pastor asked, if you had two pigs, would you give me one? Abe said, now cut that out, pastor. You know I have two pigs. <laughs> Generosity sounds good in the abstract. Many Christians picture themselves giving away half of an inheritance, but fewer, it seems, can part with one pig. So let us think practically about our lives. Where is there a space for you to be generous today? Or is there a way that the grace of God can overflow from you towards others? And maybe it is the Fiji offering. Maybe it is even getting up and sharing next Sunday. 
Maybe it is uh, partnering with different organizations like Bright Hope World or other organizations to see God's kingdom come in our world. Maybe there is a, a place for you to be generous. Can you just begin to bring that to mind? What does generosity look like for you? What's one thing you can do to show generosity at the moment? As we said earlier, the word for grace is charis. It means gift. It is the same word that Paul uses when he talks about spiritual gifts. So when Paul talks about the Macedonians and the Corinthians having the grace of generosity, he is talking about them having the spiritual gift of generosity. He's talking about them uh, receiving that grace from God. And we sometimes pray and ask God for spiritual gifts. And what I think is the natural conclusion of what we've found out today is that we should pray and ask God for the gift of giving. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.